Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we return to the subject of the oil markets, specifically around demand and supply over the next 10 to 15 years. In many ways, the demand picture is clearer, and what it points to is growing demand, at least over the medium term. The supply side is much more complicated. How will supply and who will meet the demand? What is the profile of the crude barrel that will be drilled and who will drill it? And what does it mean for refining? And how will this all play out for investors and politically? One thing we know for sure is it is not going to be an easy ride. Our guest is Joel Kaus. Joel is a special advisor to the International Energy Agency in energy markets and energy security and has had a long career at Total Energies. As always, you can really support the show by leaving us a positive review on the platform you're listening on, ideally written and ideally five stars. And as always, I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, Joel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. I'm looking. I'm very glad to be here today. So let's before we we're talking today, we're really kind of picking up the discussion from where Paul Horsnell left off, looking at the oil markets in 2023, and we're really taking that story out to, over the next decade, because I think that is such a difficult and challenging story to look at, because you you know looking at it from both the demand side and the supply side. And there's lots of risks inherent within both of those that many companies in the energy sector right now are wrestling with these decisions when it comes to investment and so forth. Before we get there, you're a special advisor to the IEA. Can you just give us a couple of lines on who the IEA are? Because I think that sets us up for this discussion. So the IEA was created by the consumer countries in uh, 1974 after the first oil shock in a bid to secure supply in the case of an emergency. So at the time, they created the uh, strategic reserves in all the member countries. It's a, uh, an international treaty, and any country that is an importing country has to have stocks equivalent to its net imports in the previous year. It also today has evolved in that role more towards a role looking at how to facilitate the energy transition There's a lot of work being done by the agency on both the the supply side and on the uh, emissions side uh, of the equation now. And that means that the remit has expanded out from oil to gas uh, and now to critical minerals. Yeah, and I think toward the end of this discussion, we're going to come back to actually, therefore, the heightened role of the IEA in the likes of the the G7 and so forth, as these topics are becoming front and center, both from a security standpoint, but also from a energy transition and climate change standpoint. So, you know, the story that we're 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 trying to tell here is is a demand that in some ways is clearer than a supply picture and almost a within the you know within the challenges of those two things coming together there could be a lot of disruption there's certainly a lot of uncertainty and volatility in some ways the the demand side is is almost a bit easier can you start off and and, you know this is something i know that you and your role at the iea are looking at let's start with that demand outlook can you maybe sort of give us the 
the the the short to medium uh, outlook first, and then we can look at that sort of twenty thirty lens as well. Yeah. So I, I think let, let's look at twenty twenty three to start with, because uh, this this is really the the first year where we will have completely come out of the uh, we'll be in a post pandemic period. China is opening itself up fully now, uh, and we will see a a surge in demand, and we will be at the highest level in 2023 in terms of demand that we've ever been at. So we'll probably jump above 101 million barrels a day. We'll be firmly in the the three-figure level now for world oil demand. So it, it shows just how robust oil demand growth continues to be. And and yet behind that uh, growth, which is driven largely by recovery in air traffic, Notably, when, when you look at the air traffic with uh, China uh, over the last couple of weeks as they've opened up, they're now well above 2019 levels. The road traffic is now well above 2019 levels as well. Uh, we also, we're also seeing a rapid expansion in, in, in petrochemical activity as new uh, steam crackers that are uh, coming on stream this year are, are being used intensively, mostly in China, which puts pressure on the rest of the world. So the, there, there is a, a strong driver of growth still in the market, despite the economic weakness that, that we're seeing worldwide. And behind that bullishness, at the same time, we see this progressive penetration of electric vehicles, more efficient ICE cars that, that's flattening the growth curve for gasoline and, and somewhat impacting diesel demand as well. But despite that recovery in gasoline, which remains, you know, 2019 will remain the peak for gasoline demand for the for the foreseeable future. We'll probably see a renewed uptick in 2023 in terms of gasoline demand, but we'll never touch that 2019 level. But it's the growth elsewhere in gas oil, in uh, petrochemicals, and jet fuel that's that's carrying demand growth now. Just a basic question of the of those 101 barrels, what percentage goes into transportation versus petrochemicals versus yeah, the, the the smaller other category. So transportation is close to you know, all forms of transportation, marine transport, air, road, etc. We're close to about 55-60%. Petrochemicals is, is probably close to another 8-10%. Uh, and the remainder is uh, heating fuels, uh, bitumen for roads, things like that, that uh, cover the, the remaining uh, volumes out to 101 million barrels a day. So that 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 sixty percent odd for transportation is is two thirds road, and then marine transport and and air transport jet fuel demand. So transportation is the key driver of oil demand. Yeah, and th- correct me if I'm wrong. That hundred and one number, I mean, it sounds quite surprising to me. You know, when we were, you know, I know we were creeping towards a hundred. But there was sort of this expectation that it would be a slow tail down from there. I mean, how how much of a surprising number is that? And you know, where does that number sort of go from from here? If you look to start toward the medium term, um, is it a surprising number? I, I don't think it should be a surprising number, but I, I don't think anybody was really expecting that we would you know jump above a hundred million barrels a day five years ago. Uh, I think people were hoping that the um, Efficiency gains, uh, the, the energy transition would uh, continue to limit uh, growth in demand. But that said, the, the, the medium-term forecasts were already 
showing that level of demand out around 2025 and beyond. Now we're at sort of 2025 figures of 101 million barrels a day, partly driven by the strong growth east of Suez in, in Asia, in India, in China. And what, what we're seeing on a, on a medium-term profile is that that will continue to rise and that there will be a peak probably somewhere between 2025 and, and 2035. Now, that's, that's a pretty broad range. But a lot of it really depends on how fast electric vehicle penetration begins to offset the growth in demand in other sectors. Electric vehicle penetration has, you know, it, it, it's become extremely rapid. The, the Chinese electric vehicle sales are now uh, at levels in, in 2023 that were expected in, in 24, 25. The Chinese are expecting to have vehicle sales in 2025 that are close to the level of what they were expecting in, in 2030. So that, that acceleration uh, is, is also being seen in, in the U.S. with the, uh, the IRA, which is going to provide funding for uh, electric vehicles in, in, the, in, the coming, in the coming years. And uh, in, in, in Europe as well, there's subsidies to facilitate the, the penetration of electric vehicles and, and the infrastructure in order to meet uh, charging requirements for those electric vehicles. So if, if there is that acceleration, that, that peak in oil demand will be brought back from the 2030-2035 time, time horizon to something between 2025 and 2035. Mm. However, we're still looking at growth in the coming years from 101 million barrels a day where we are in 2023. And and therein lies the challenge that we're going to come on to, right? Because it's no mean feat producing 103 million barrels a day and the amount of investment, the amount of infrastructure needed to do that, especially in a world that is becoming, to some extent, more polarized, more deglobalized, and you don't have the same efficiencies that you had previously. But I'll, I'll leave that there. So if, you think, if we think about the world in sort of accelerators and decelerators, Certainly, from an accelerator standpoint, are there any kind of waypoints that you can point to for people to be able to sort of contextualize EV adoption? Like what, what rates of penetration really start making it look more like a pre-2030 story? And also, how much are the IEA looking at and thinking around going to alternative fuels, electric vehicles in, in sort of the harder to abate industries like for example, airlines, which I know is much further out. We've discussed that previously, but things like maritime alternatives aren't there as well. How how much is that? You know, can you just give us some sort of orientation as to waypoints there? In, in terms of the electric vehicle penetration, I, I think there, there are two ideas to have in mind. One is the new car sales, and new car sales are important. I think once we get up to sort of the uh, 35, 40% horizon, we've achieved a dynamic that is critical to the development of, of, the, of the car fleet. But I think the second thing to have in mind is that the majority of people don't buy new cars. There's a part of the population that buys new cars. They, they go into company car fleets, and then after about three years, they begin to roll off into secondhand car sales. And that's where it begins to have a substantial, a more substantial impact on the shape of the, the the fleet that's operating. If you look at Norway, for example, that has had a very rapid progression in the penetration of electric vehicles, their their use of transport fuels, road transport fuels, has changed very little over the last five or six years, despite uh, achieving a, a rapid level of penetration in new car sales. 
simply because it, it takes time to build up the, the presence of electric vehicles in the fleet in order to have an impact on, on demand. So even if we're selling 40, 50% of, of new car sales as electric vehicles, the time that the electric vehicle share of the operating fleet, uh, the time that that builds up to 30 or 40% of the operating fleet could be five, six, eight, eight years as the, the fleet uh, turns over over a, a 12 year, 10, 12 year horizon. So I, I think we have to have in mind that you know, even if we're at 20 or 30% of new car sales, It'll still take anywhere from five to eight years before we really begin to have a significant impact on the, on the fuel demand. But we're, it's very unlikely that we'll see uh, gasoline demand going back to the level that we saw in 2019. From here on in, it's, it's probably a little bit of growth in the next couple of years and then a, a, a steady decline on gasoline, which will be offset by the growth in the, the other the other uh, oil products coming out of the other out of the refinery. And because this is going to be relevant to the supply side and decisions around investment, what is the thinking around the post internal combustion engine world? You know, where does oil demand sit then to meet maybe still those hard to abate areas like aviation, but certainly the petrochemicals industry? I mean, we're not going to create a new supply chain for them. There's still going to be demand for oil and it, and its derivatives. Yeah, meeting that, uh, I, I think the, the key factor, and, and it, it applies to road transport as well in the ICE vehicles, it's, it's efficiency gains that will, that will help reduce or limit growth in, in, uh, in oil use in these sectors. So both uh, ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, and uh, the maritime sector equivalent have programs to Im- improve fuel efficiency in planes and ships. And that's meant to uh, reduce the, the fuel consumption per ton kilometer for, per passenger kilometer in these sectors. But a shift to alternative fuels uh, is progressing more on the aviation side than on the, the maritime transport side. We've got the uh, Sustainable Aviation Fuels, SAF, SAF, that is uh, progressing. The volumes are, are fairly modest today compared yeah, t- to the, Tiny, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, quite tiny indeed, yeah. But they'll, they'll pick up. The, the reality, though, is that in terms of renewable fuels, uh, diesel, gasoline, and jet, we, we will probably not be more than a third of total jet demand will be renewable jet or sta- sustainable aviation fuel uh, in the years to come, simply because we the, the plant-based material that uh, has to produce it uh, has a limited surface area on the world to, to be produced from. Yeah, but we will still, I mean, I guess the point I'm driving at is we will still have oil producers in a hundred years time, assuming that there aren't alternatives found for the petrochemical industry. Exactly. And, and we, we don't want to get rid of plastics entirely. We want to recycle the plastics that we're using. We want to use them more intelligently. But plastics, you know, if you look around you, they, they are critical for hygiene. They are critical for many of the products that we produce because we, they give us flexibility. They give us lightness. They provide uh, means of support for, for many of the, the, the products and clothes and, and packaging and things that we use that we couldn't possibly have otherwise. So we have to be more intelligent about the way we use the plastics, but we'll still need the oil. We will still need them, and we just have to be more careful about what we do with that packaging and recycle it. 
staying just on that final piece on demand side, do you think there's going to be more surprises to the the upside, i.e. Uh, the amount of demand for oil, or do you think there'll be more surprises toward the rapid decline in demand? I think in the in the coming five years, we could be surprised on the upside for oil, particularly when you look at the strength of um, of growth in, in the Indian economy going forward. The Indian economy is is targeting a a Chinese like development phase now in, in the next phase, next uh, 10, 15 years that will, will be very much like what happened in China between 2000 and 2015, where there's an intense industrialization. The Indians don't want to be dependent on China. They want to manufacture their own solar cells. They want to manufacture their own solar panels. So there, there's, there's a very rapid change going on in India, which will inherently develop fairly intense oil demand to accompany that that change. And we may be surprised by what the impact is in terms of demand. Uh, on the Chinese side, while we have an economy that, that will probably slow down in terms of its growth, it will also be slowed in terms of energy consumption by the very rapid development of electric vehicles. China is the country with the most rapid penetration in electric vehicles worldwide today. So I, we'll, we'll see two very different trends, but probably India will, will hold or sustain oil consumption over the next five years in, in an unexpectedly high way. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Let's move on to the supply side because there is a security story in there that means, you know, if those expectations aren't met, we're suddenly in a very different social environment that could result, right? We've already seen yeah. some of that with the energy crisis. So looking at the supply side, which I said at the start, is kind of the more complex picture. Unfortunately, because ultimately we're talking about a 10 years until, roughly speaking, peak oil demand, and that doesn't overlay with the typical uh, investment horizons of the oil infrastructure. But, but we'll get there. So but if we split this into kind of, I guess, the... The, the crude, you know, crude oil, um, and then the refining side, and then we'll come on to financing and the political impacts and aspects to consider. You said something really interesting: um, the juxtaposition of, you know, the last the last barrel of oil to be drilled will be the cheapest, the last barrel, the last gasoline to be sold will be the most expensive. <laughs> but let's yeah. start with that the 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 drilling side. How is that going to map and meet? that nebulous 2030, 2035 peak demand? Yeah, I mean, from a company point of view, in terms of investors, because the forward-looking risk companies don't want to invest in, in high-cost production, I don't think you would see today companies going into the oil sands in Western Canada to, to start whole new projects of mining out and, and building upgraders and things like that. It's just it's far too expensive given the time horizons and the uncertainty of the time horizons. So the, the barrels that we're developing today are, are low-cost barrels. 
even if they're in uh, deep offshore developments, the, the cost per barrel for those developments is, is quite low. There are developments in the Middle East where the costs are quite low as well. At the same time, I, I think we can reasonably expect, and we've seen that in recent months, that OPEC management, I mean, I, I think OPEC, like other producers, is, is looking at the uncertainty the uncertainty in the time horizon about uh, how much oil is going to be needed. And they're saying, we want to, we want to have a, an oil price over this window that meets uh, our financial requirements. And they will probably continue to manage that market so that the, the oil price is, which is in line with sort of the uh, budgetary break-even for the Saudis, the Emiratis, uh, the Kuwaitis, the Iraqis. But we've got low costs. We've got crude prices that will probably be managed in, in, in that, uh, that horizon. And then on the other side, as you're pointing out, Paul, you have refiners that are just, you know, why would you build a new refinery? Why would you build new refining capacity today, given the, the, law, the, the time horizon? It's a refinery is a, a 20 or, or 30 year project in, in terms of, you know, it doesn't take 20, 30 years to build, but it, it's going to be used for 20 or 30 years. So the, the, the refineries that are in place today are going to be used and eventually retired. And when we look across the refining industry today, there, there's very little spare capacity in that industry as compared to the, the growth that we're seeing, the recovery in, in demand that we're seeing. It's actually quite a tight market. And anywhere that there's spare capacity, if, if it's anywhere, it's, it's in Russia and China, which means that it's, it's relatively inaccessible to a large Stranded, part yeah. of the world uh, the world's buyers today the, i mean this makes generates so many questions for me just going back to the 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 crude angle first my first question is if you were to sort of use that rubric of quality and low cost you know like guiana like we're seeing in sort of namibia and you know obviously the middle east is that sufficient to meet that demand without the Canadian oil sands and the harder, you know, the more expensive barrels? Well, what we see in, in terms of the evolution of, uh, of upstream production is that over the next, uh, the next 10 years up, up to 2030, which is not 10 years, but up to 2030, most of the incremental supply to, to meet that demand growth. I mean, because you have to, you have to keep in mind that you also have the natural decline rate that has to be offset over that period as well, which is about 3% a year. So you end up having to supply uh, anywhere from about uh, 15 to, to 25 million barrels a day of, of incremental supply over this period. And probably 50% of that is going to come from the Middle East. Another 20 odd percent will be U.S. shale, some from uh, North American oil sands that, that are marginal developments. And then another 20% uh, from deep water uh, production in, in Brazil and in Guyana and Latin America. And elsewhere in the world, we'll probably see declines in, in Africa, in Europe, uh, in Asia, and, and quite possibly in, in Russia as well. So we're, we're seeing the, the Middle East, the OPEC producers, taking an increasing weight and increasing share in the overall supply perspectives. We haven't really developed any new resources over the last five years. And the, the, the amount being invested today is, is really quite limited, even though the, the, the IEA suggests that we should be investing somewhere between about uh, 350 and, and 450 billion dollars a year to cover the, uh, 
the cost of incremental capacity in, in the coming years, which is more or less in line with, with what the, the, the companies are investing today in, in, in the upstream sector, the oil market. The, the problem is with the, the, the 13% inflation rate in, in uh, service sector costs for the oil industry, the, the, the effect of that investment is, is far too low. We aren't yeah. really developing the resources that we need. Which has a people angle to it as well. I mean, most of those upstream, whether it's the contractors, the producers, whomever, have shed a lot of talent. I mean, you know, in just knowing it from personal experience in in Houston and you know my wife's job, you know, those companies really did sort of cut deeply, and it was an aging workforce as well. So there's a there's a talent angle that we even were there, you know, that that that, that might be one of the rate limiting factors that's being under considered. The one other question, so. It seems to me that if you are you're sat in the boardroom of a an oil major, and you know let's ignore sort of stakeholders and other pressures for the moment, your best bets therefore are on these low cost production areas, but also in our previous discussion you mentioned the the necessity of speed. Can you talk to that a minute? The necessity of speed in terms of uh, moving towards these opportunities is we. As I was mentioning earlier, there, there's kind of a window of opportunity now. Everybody is looking towards the future and saying, well, we, we need more oil. There's a, a window in which the oil prices will ensure that the investment that we're making will be rewarded. We have to do it fast now. So the decisions are made faster. The financing has to pay off uh, over a shorter period of time, which means that the internal rate of return on these projects has to be much higher. We're, you know, we're not looking at 12 or 13 percent anymore. It's it's close. It's 20 percent and, and, and sometimes more for these projects, uh, simply because that 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 the accelerated payoff period. And at, at the same time, the, the projects, like many of the deep water projects, this is this is a, a very good profile for the deep water projects. The the production ramps up to a peak very quickly. It produces out for three, four, five years and, and progressively ramps down after that. So the, the deep water tends to be very much in line with this view now that uh, we, we could be moving closer and closer towards a horizon where demand will begin to drop off at, at, an, accelerated play, uh, at an accelerated pace. Mm. Provided that all those rigs that got cold stacked or uh, you know sold for scrap the remaining ones are sufficient for the drilling programs out there, but that's probably a different podcast. Okay, so moving on to the refining side. Fascinating. You mentioned, of course, that um, there's no incentive, therefore, to invest in refining capacity. We're almost at capacity. Also, I assume that that capacity is very much geared towards a gasoline market, whereas actually you're seeing the main growth in jet fuel, heating oil, you know, and petrochemical industry. That, I assume, also poses a real challenge to kind of the stability of the infrastructure to be able to meet this demand picture profile over the next, let's call it a decade. Yeah, in, indeed. That's, that's, uh, that's exactly the challenge. We've, we've built and we, we've seen that already to some extent in the past in, in, in Europe with the advent of uh, diesel cars, refineries that had been designed to produce and maximize gasoline output had to rejig and reconfigure to maximize diesel output. And so we'll probably see that evolve, that evolution beginning to affect other regions of the world. Interestingly, there, there's uh, some of the, uh, uh, the NOCs have been doing research in the uh, French Institute of Petroleum here in Paris 
looking at the possibility of, of using naphtha, which is a key component of gasoline, as a fuel in diesel engines, because it, it has obviously a low octane and, and potentially could react correctly to a sort of high cetane environment in, in a diesel engine. So this, this thinking is already happening to some extent. How do we adapt what our refiners are capable of producing to uh, a product mix where we may not have much gasoline anymore, but we still need middle distillates and we're still going to have naphtha. Yeah. Well, what is the investment profile timelines for a refinery? Just, I know it's a bit of a basic question, but, you know, these 30-year investment, 50-year investments, I mean, what's the expected payoff timeline? And and, because I imagine that's unlike these, you know, deep water wells that you can get flowing pretty quickly. It's a very different scenario when it comes to refineries. And and I guess therein lies the real challenge. Yes, exactly. Uh, you, you, you're probably looking at a, a five-year horizon to uh, take a decision, three to five years to consider take the decision. The refineries that, that are built today are world-scale refineries. They're, they're very large refineries, very complex, often backed up against uh, petrochemical facilities. So there's a, an integrated margin there to ensure that the payoff happens over a, a, you know, a, a limited horizon, five years, 10 years at the outside. And then from there, you know, the, the, the refinery, which is, a, you know, this is a huge complex, it should continue to generate a steady margin uh, for the company. Building these refineries is, is an incredibly intensive operation. Total Energy Satorp refinery, uh, I think in the final year of construction, they had 30,000 workers on site at one point to build the refinery. So it's 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 a really intense. They're they're big big projects, especially when they're happening in a country like Saudi Arabia, where things are well organized uh, and they can move along rather quickly. Yeah, does the IEA consider the talent aspect to that? I mean, I assume you know you don't want to be the last engineer that can. Well, maybe you do that can build a refinery. It's it's an interesting point. Clearly, talent is a is an issue. The the IEA looks at presence of of women in the labor force for the energy sector. I think they're as, as concerned as anything else about the, uh, the the talent required for the energy transition in terms of building out sufficient solar panels, wind turbines, uh, et cetera. But clearly uh, it's, it's, a, it's a real risk for the oil sector if we don't have the talent there. And, and it's, a, it's a struggle, I think, for major oil companies where you have people that are in exploration production in refining, and they see the companies moving towards investment in uh, in renewable energies, and they say, "Well, what am I going to be doing?" So, it 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 uh, from a human resources point of view, managing those expectations and and providing training in order to move the people smoothly between one activity and another is critical in order to avoid a, a shortfall in, in talent. But I, I I agree with you on that. It, it's it's a major issue. And it's it's something that we're confronting across the board, uh, you know, in, in terms of bringing semiconductor production back to Europe, back to the U.S. I don't think we have the talent to you know, build those semiconductor factories and operate them. France wants to renew its nuclear program. I don't think we have the nuclear engineers necessarily to start a, a new phase of building out nuclear power plants. Some of these power plants in, Euro- in, in Europe and in France are 30 to 40 40, over 40 years old. So there, there really is a, a talent pool consideration, I agree, Paul. Yeah, especially when in a deglobalizing world, you, you can't draw on a global workforce. 
down the line. So our 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 organize our, our, our refiners integrated majors are they making any bets at the moment? Are we actually are we seeing investment in new refineries or is it all you know it's it's maintaining the ones you've got? We are seeing new investments in refining, but the investments are happening, for example, in China, in the Middle East. There's a, a large refinery that's been under construction for a couple of years in, in Nigeria that may come on stream in 2024. There's a refinery that's been under construction for a couple of years in Mexico that may come on stream in, in 2024 as well. So the projects are there, but it's not the majors. They're not in Europe. They're not in North America. They're in the uh, emerging markets where demand growth is, is likely to continue. Part of them are, are of national interest, if I can call it that, uh, in, in Nigeria and Mexico. Part of them are opportunistic uh, in China uh, and the Middle East. Which, you know, A, and also I guess it's fair to say that probably most of if they're, if they're coming up for completion, then by using your timeline you outlaid, you know, these are 20-year-old projects, right? So... The, I assume that the pipeline isn't full for future projects. We talked about new refineries, but we've had a number of refinery closures over the last couple of years. And, and those closures are going to probably continue in, in the U.S. And, and, and Europe. That's where the closures happened as local demand continues to decline and as pressure on carbon emissions uh, steadily increases. The, the refineries in, in, in Europe and uh, the U.S., many of them are very old. Many of them are small as compared to what we call a world-scale refinery today, so their economics are rather poor. And as we build out new capacity elsewhere in the world, we're going to see these refineries close down. And it it will raise some questions about the overall adequacy of supply and the the flows, the trade flows uh, resulting from crude supply to those refineries and and product exports that uh, would be going, for example, to African markets or Latin American markets uh, in order to meet demand in, in those markets. Which is going to have security implications as well, yep. which we'll come on to, because that, I think, is just the fascinating kind of really difficult picture here. And, and really, an oil industry that's been largely left alone, at least in the West, you know, is, is now suddenly becoming, again, very much a strategic issue and want to balance with the electron revolution. I keep throwing these these big big topics out. I'm sorry. Let's move on to financing, because even if you were to want you know to be you know an oil major, and you wanted to invest heavily in new production in refineries etc., you also face the issue of can you get financing in an environment where the banks, the traditional financiers of this space, have either pulled out. Uh, which is fair to say of some of the big French banks that were very involved in in project finance and trade finance around the commodity sector, or at least they're trying to shrink their portfolios in an effort to decarbonize those portfolios. That presents a real challenge as well, right? Can we talk on the financing piece? There is pressure on the banks to reduce the um, the carbon content of their loan portfolios, uh, and so there are commitments that have been made. Banks that have said, you know, we will reduce by 30 or 40 percent the carbon content of our, our loan portfolios towards the year uh, 2030. And, and that means, I think in most cases, it means that as loans are rolled off, they will not be renewed or there will new loans will not be made, uh, credit facilities made for uh, fossil fuel projects in, in the coming years. So that raises a question about how the, the projects are going to be financed. So financing 
for large companies that have the have the coverage, uh, they, they may be able to self-finance. I think most of the large oil companies paid down most of their debt. So there there is the possibility for the companies to increase their debt again. I mean, going from zero to 20% can, can represent uh, a lot of money and can help to finance one or two large projects. But after that, you know, where do you get the financing from uh, for a large offshore project? Is it, uh, is it going to have to come from uh, Middle Eastern banks or, or banks in, in, in the Far East that are perhaps less sensitive to the question of, of uh, uh, carbon in their, in their portfolios? Yeah. You and I had this fascinating discussion about using coal as an analogous story, or perhaps a, a canary in the coal mine, sorry, for how you know we might see the crude market develop. And, and coal is yet a story I have to cover on this podcast, and it's proving very hard to find someone who wants to talk about it publicly. But of course, last year we saw coal go from $50 a ton, $100 a ton, to $400 a ton. And that industry, as a result of financiers pulling out, has largely privatized and is highly volatile and you know it's the same story yet demand was the peaked or was the highest it's ever been in 2022 it points to a real challenges the oil industry could face as this you know i know an economist would shoot me for saying this but as the supply side disconnects from the demand side well no it's it's exactly that because we on, on the one hand there's been pressure not to invest in coal, and we saw that begin as early as 2014, 2015, and the number of projects has diminished over time. Uh, China as well said so they would stop financing non-Chinese coal mines. Uh, so the, the, the lack of facilities to finance that production uh, has intensified as time has go on, gone on. And as you point out, in, instead of declining, which was the expectation, coal use has actually increased. And we're, we're seeing that increase to some extent, reinforced by the desire to the desire for energy security, the Chinese keep building coal-fired power plants because even if they're only used for you know 10, 20 percent operating rate on average over the course of the year, they are there in case the variable supply from renewable sources, uh, including hydropower, is is inadequate. We look back to last summer, the Chinese hydro uh, hydro power output was very, very weak because of the drought. So there, there's this, this has become for some of the large Asian countries like Indonesia, India, and China, the backup power option. Whereas I think many people were expecting it to be natural gas for a while. Now that it's clear that uh, these countries are going to be using it as a backup power option. So all of a sudden, we've got a dislocation between the amount of investment needed to sustain production in coal and the, the expected use of it, which is relatively uncertain, but uh, clearly there will be a demand for coal. And I think we could extrapolate that to oil, which is I think what, what you're alluding to, that you know we, 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 we know that uh, we want to move away from oil. Uh, and so we want to start backing off on the investment in the production of oil at this point in time. And yet we don't know at what pace that decline in oil is actually going to happen. So we could very well find ourselves in a coal-like situation where we haven't invested the way we need to. We don't have the spare capacity to cover a sudden surge in demand. But more critically, if, if there's this steady growth 
in demand that with which the projects elsewhere in the world can't keep up, well, we're going to eat into that spare capacity over time, and it will continue to reduce. Yeah, and and I, I think it's called the Kardashev theory, which is, and I'm going to get a little philosophical here, which is essentially the rise of civilization and the development of civilization is equally mapped and correlated to its energy consumption. And the obverse is true as well, of course, when societies start to decline or failed states, etc., you see energy consumption go down. I mean, we're talking, this is, a, I guess, moving into the politi- political sphere. This is a really important needle to thread because if you get this wrong and we end up with big mismatches, A, it's going to be the poor that suffer, right, with the, you know, as, as the average jewel costs more. And as we know, and as we've seen, albeit kind of escaped, certainly the winter so far has been mild in Europe that has, I think, had some profound impacts on sort of saving some of the policies there. This is life and death stuff, society stability stuff as well, right? If we get it wrong. Exactly. I mean, the the energy equation today that uh, I think just about, whether it's the oil companies or the IEA, the government, it's availability, affordability, and clean energy. And availability means energy security, making sure that the production is there to meet demand requirements. And affordability, as you're pointing out, uh, if the emerging markets, uh, the poor can't afford the energy, and we can see it, we we saw it this year with the the extreme prices that we had in Europe, it created a pretty serious hardship for for, uh, a lot of people that, you know, it meant governments had to start helping to pay those people, help help to subsidize the cost of that energy for people, and it's it's created very significant uh, deficits for countries like like France in terms of offsetting the cost of those deficits. So yeah, we want to make sure that energy remains affordable. We want to make sure that it's that it, it is accessible, and that the security issues uh, are are not something that we have to confront on a regular basis. I think one of the things we mentioned was that the IEA uh, member countries, in an effort to offset the impact of the invasion of the Ukraine, the uh, embargo of Russian oil, there was 180 million barrels released from uh, the USSPR uh, related to the that crisis. There was about another 60 million barrels from from the rest of the IEA. Uh, the uh, the US also had uh, around 40 to 60 million barrels that they were releasing in parallel programs. So all told, from about March through to December, we were releasing almost a million barrels a day of oil, crude, and, and, and product to help stabilize the market. And yet, when you look at uh, what was what was happening with Russian oil, we we didn't lose a million barrels a day of Russian oil. We only lost a few hundred thousand barrels a day of Russian oil uh, versus their their first quarter production levels over the remainder of the year. So there, there, there's clearly uh, an imbalance in the market, uh, and we've we've only been able to really get back into balance over the last quarter of the year, uh, in part because of the weakness in Chinese demand as a result of the um, uh, the, the COVID outbreaks uh, and the overall slowing of the economy. But presumably, the economy is going to take off again in a couple of quarters. Uh, and the uptick that we're seeing in China uh, right now as they come out of COVID is, is going to pull up uh, Asian economic activity in its wake. And we will probably see uh, renewed uh, renewed tensions in the market. 
so you know it's, this context is is in front of us now, and I think we have to uh, sort of keep that in mind as to how much investment we need in the coming months and years uh, as the uh, as the market moves forward in order to ensure that uh, the, the the supply is is available even as we transition to the new energies that we have to transition to over over the coming five to ten years. Don't know whether this is accessible to the public, but how how you know have we spent all our strategic reserves, or is there still plenty left in the tank? Well, there's plenty left left in the tank. Yeah, yeah. The U.S. drew down 180 million, so it, it really you know we're 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 still quite uh, quite high in the overall profile, uh, and yet the U.S. would uh, would like to bring that um, that volume back restitute that volume uh, in, in the coming years. And they, they put into place a program to buy incremental crude production uh, from American producers to, to refill the SPR. But 10 years ago, the U.S. SPR was over 700 million barrels. And, and progressively, between 2015 and, and 2020, it was drawn down to about uh, uh, 600 million barrels. And then we've, we've drawn it down now to about uh, 400 million barrels. Mm, doesn't sound a particularly profitable trade, but uh, just knowing the prices of those periods. The So Daniel Jurgen said something that was really interesting. You know, we had him on a, a year ago or so and, and sort of spoke about the impact on economies. And you can see it in the currencies of those en- those countries that have are basically energy exporters, oil exporters, and those that are net importers. And the growing divide in kind of fortunes and outlook for those countries, excluding Russia and what's going on there. This presumably, if we sort of see this picture of supply struggling to maintain with demand, so therefore prices going up, you've also, even outside of sort of prices, you're going to have volatility in actual physical supply as systems start to degrade. We had Doug Hogg talking about that in, in just the retail gasoline space. This all points to a potentially quite a differing fortunes over the next decade. And also, presumably, Europe uh, in particular being dare I say it, sort of held hostage to some autocratic regimes that do that have lent into oil and refinery production. Indeed, I think Europe is, is one of the most exposed regions because its its own production is is steadily declining. I mean, the, the Norwegian production is is having a, a temporary uptick right now with the Johan Sverdrup's field, which is an enormous field that started up two three years ago. But once once that field has peaked in its production, again, European production will go into decline. That's only 2 million barrels a day out of, out of a demand level that's uh, six times larger. So they're, they're quite exposed, and the cost of the imports of that energy are relatively high. At the same time, the region remains a, a significant gas producer. They, they produce nuclear energy, and they're increasing their production of uh, renewable electricity. So that, that is, is helping to offset some of that, that energy dependence. But it, it will take years to reduce that energy dependence to a, a more manageable level. And it, it has been critical uh, to, to keep energy prices at, at, at low cost. Europe has benefited from the, the low natural gas prices uh, provided by Russia for, for, for decades. But that's that's no longer going to be the case, and and the cost of natural gas is now going to be uh, two or three times higher than what they would have paid otherwise, and that's as you're pointing out, 
going to weigh on the uh, the European accounts. Yeah. What does this mean? I always, you know, when you think of Africa over the next 10 years, you know, there, it would strike me that they're, they're, that's a really challenging place because you've got presumably rising prices for gasoline and you don't have the energy infrastructure or, you know, given the relative cost to to have any that switch to EVs. So, I mean, what's going to happen in the developing, you know, what's the IEA talking to developing nations about how they can you know, manage this transition that is very much developed nations led and, and has, you know, an inherent inequality in it? Yeah, and, and that, it's an important point. The, um, the IEA is, works uh, as a whole sub-Saharan African program to, to look at what uh, can be done to support countries in, in, on the one hand, their energy policy, also in, in the energy transition, how to adapt their energy policy to uh, move forward in the energy transition. But in a study on Africa last year, one of the points that was brought out was that if Africa developed its natural gas for its own use, it would represent uh, just a small fraction of total greenhouse gas emissions worldwide at a, at, a, at a 10 or 20 year horizon. So we have to be very careful about not depriving the Africans of the, the opportunity to develop their resources and benefit from what those resources would provide them in terms of an energy economy that, that will allow their, their overall development. At the same time, we want them, we want to accompany them in, in moving towards an energy transition with a development of renewable energy. So we have to look at ways to help these, these countries finance renewable energy projects, which isn't always obvious in, in terms of the impact of the exchange rate movements that can happen in these countries. I think the other thing is that, as I was saying earlier, there's this, this, this phenomenon of the, the secondhand car market as the EV uh, phenomena develops in the, the in the developed world, the emerging markets benefit, if I can put it that way, from used car sales. In other words, used cars in Europe are, are moved across the Mediterranean into the African market. So at some point, those used cars moving across the Mediterranean and the African market, they're going to be electric vehicles. There will be fewer and fewer uh, ICE vehicles. And so those countries will have to develop the, 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 the wherewithal, the resources, the charging facilities in order to accommodate that. And that may not be in the next five years or 10 years, but it will begin to happen within the next 20 years. And, and it will be important for them to have built out that infrastructure and, and they need to be accompanied on that. And I think the presence of, of some of the European oil companies that are, are some of the key marketing organizations, you know, any is there, Total Energy, Shell and others, they, they will participate in that build out because they they have very large fuel networks and they won't want to lose their markets i assume that there's never been such a challenging time to be in this sector making you know because from all that you've said there's a there's a there's a case that oil could go to 200 in a couple of years or more and then be worth you know worth 40 you know inflation adjusted in 15 I mean, it really is a challenging space to, and, and like I said earlier on, one that now has real strategic geopolitical ramifications as well. I, I, you know, is the IEA in the business of making predictions? I mean, where, you know, where do you think, in, in summary, this could go over the next decade? 
the IEA doesn't make predictions. I, I think we they they try to emphasize that their their long term forecasts are scenarios. But you know, I think I think what is very clear is that the level of uncertainty is is tremendous. And I, as I, I think both of us have been saying of, of the last uh, half hour, that the that uncertainty is an impediment to investment. And the more that uncertainty increases, the greater that impediment becomes. There's a, a great incentive to invest on an opportunistic basis if you know one sees that the shortfalls are, are could you know meeting those shortfalls could be could be very profitable on a short-term basis. But you know, not many companies have shareholders that are are you know going to allow them to take that kind of bet. So it 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 really raises a significant issue. But the, the the growing uncertainty is clearly a challenge for investment, whether it's the upstream or the midstream or, or even the, the downstream, as as you were mentioning with, with Doug Hogue, that you know as as the as you know the, the demand for the oil uh, declines in certain markets, people are going to start limiting their their investment. Uh, so you know we're I, I think everybody's quite concerned about it because everybody is quite concerned that you know the. The stability of supply is there. That the energy security uh, requirements are, are met, both for the developed and the, the emerging markets, and at a reasonable cost to consumers. But oil affects everybody on a day-to-day basis because of the cost of filling up the, the tank and, and, and the cost of driving. And I, I think that will be much, much, much more sensitive in, in the years to come. Mm. Well, you only have to see the political responses, you know, in the US, in France, you know, in the UK, you know, around the world with relatively small price increases in in gasoline to be slightly concerned about it. Well, it, it's been a fascinating discussion, Joel. I really hope we can have you back on again, you know, in a year's time or so and, and see where we stand, because I think, you know, as you say, you don't make predictions, but the scenarios that you're mapping out are really important. And I think it's trying to piece together the various signals and gateways that the market presents as to what decisions we make and uh, you know a, a more nuanced look at what is going to be a really challenging story over the next decade great paul i, I appreciate the opportunity to, to have this discussion with you it was uh, a great discussion and uh, i look forward to chatting with you again thank you very much thank you for listening If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.